0: Thank you for joining us on the Sermon Podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word.
1: chapter 5 verse 1 and then 13 through 26 hear the word of the Lord for freedom Christ set us free stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery let's read 13 through 26 for you were called to be free brothers and sisters only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh But serve one another through love, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This ends the reading of God's Word, the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, this is your word and we are your people. And Father, we come before you asking you to cause our hearts to be submitted to you. Humble our hearts as we approach this word this morning. Let this word speak to us in ways that we may not have heard it speak to us before. Let it quicken our hearts in your presence. Let us be renewed by this word this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen uh, heard his fair share of confessions over the years, some too treacherous to repeat, even if he wanted to, and some that really weren't that bad at all, and some that might have been along the lines of, you know, Father, forgive me, I have sinned, I dropped a spoon at the restaurant that was, and I was in such a rush that I didn't pick, a, uh, pick it up and put it in the sink. I just put it back with the clean silverware, right? You know, that's not really all that simple, but it does make you question whether you want, want to eat at that restaurant or not. Well, in addition to hearing his con- fair share of confessions from parishioners, he would sometimes take confessions from monks and nuns. And and uh, he remarked one time that hearing a nun's confession was like being stoned to death with popcorn. It, and if and if that's what he thought when he heard the confessions of nuns, then he probably would have thought, uh, then he probably would have thought something completely different when he read the confessions of Saint Augustine. He probably would have thought that the confessions of Saint Augustine was like getting executed by firing line with a German World War II tank. Augustine didn't hold back in his confessions. He confessed everything. Thirteen volumes are filled with nothing but him bearing his soul to God, and he writes every gruesome and gritty detail. Things that you and I would never say out loud, much less write down to be published. But confessions isn't simply Augustine airing out his dirty laundry. In the words of Trevin Wax, Confessions is the story of one man's love affair with God. Before he is anything else, Augustine is a lover. He throws himself headlong into his passions, his education, his reputation, his promiscuity, and then finally, and forever, he surveys the depths of the God who has captivated him with joy. Augustine lived a really rough life before coming to know Christ. His mother spent countless hours, countless days, countless months, and countless years praying for her son. And she would would go to the throne room of God every day begging him to bring her son back into the fold. Augustine lived life to the fullest, or at least what he thought was to the fullest, before he repented. And came back to the church. And. He didn't want. You know if you go back and study his life. And you go back and study the way he lived. It's clear. He wanted nothing to do with the church. But at the same time. He felt loss. He felt agony. He felt a vacancy in his soul. And you can read in his confessions how he talks about his conversion experience. What it came to is he, it came to him praying one night and begging God to tell him what to do because he knew God was calling him. He knew God was after him. He knew that God wasn't going to let him go. And he finally said, alright God, I give up. What do you want from me? And he turned and he saw a scroll that he had hidden away that his mother gave to him. And on that scroll was Paul's letter to the Romans. And he opened up the scroll and he read Romans 13. And I'll actually turn there and read it. On that scroll, (coughs) he just played Bible roulette. you You know how you do sometimes whenever you want to hear from God, and you don't know what God wants you to do, and so you're like, I'm just going to open up my Bible, and whatever verse my eyes land on, that's what God is saying to me, right? Well, that doesn't always work, but that's, it worked for Augustine that day because his eyes landed on Romans 13, verse 12 through 14. Where it said, the night is nearly over and the day is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of flesh. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness and not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." And Augustine pretty much crumbled under the weight of those verses, and he gave himself fully over to the church and to Christ in that moment. And when Augustine writes his confessions, he hides nothing, he lays everything out on the altar of transparency, and he shows how good God has been to him in spite of his past transgressions. And one of the most famous passages in Augustine's confession is in book 10, where he describes the manner in which God pursued him. He said, Late have I loved you. O beauty, ever ancient, ever new, late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness I plunged into the lovely things which you made. I plunged into the lovely things which you made. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would have not been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. Now, if you've ever listened to Caleb's Top 40 for any length of time at all, you might know that there is a... uh, contemporary worship song that kind of echoes those sentiments and that song is actually based off of this passage in Augustine's confession. Now as I read and I was meditating on that this week I've been wondering how many of us would be able to describe our relationship with God in those terms or maybe we can't describe our relationship with God like that maybe it's too personal maybe it's too intimate. Maybe we can't describe our relationship with God like that because we don't actually desire God in the way that Augustine did or the way that Augustine described. It could be that the only reason that Augustine can say things like, I drew in breath and now I pant for you, is because he had an experience where God shouted through the deafness of his soul and flashed through the blindness of his heart. Maybe we don't passionately desire God because we've never had an experience with God where he broke through the stubbornness. And hardness of our hearts, now, my goal this morning is not to cast a shadow of doubt on our salvation, but rather for us to examine our relationship with God and see if it could be lacking. I think many times God calls us to go deeper and wider and we're content with the status quo. We're content with Sunday morning and midweek Bible study. That's all the Bible study we need. That's all the prayer we need. But what Paul describes in our text this morning in Galatians 5 is not something that is only reserved for Sunday morning or midweek meeting. Paul describes the life of a believer who has been completely sold out to God. Back in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, "...it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." This passage in Galatians 5 is the natural outworking of a life that is constantly being put to death so that Christ can live. You know, we live in a culture that says that the best thing you can do is be yourself, live your truth, achieve your dreams... You know, that we hear things all the time like that. You know, your problem is not that you're indulging in sin and suppressing the righteousness of God with your rebellion. No, your problem is that you just don't like yourself enough. You know, your problem is not that you're denying the God who created you to be denying who God created you to be. Your problem is that you just need to, you just need more affirmation from other people, you know, so that they can they can believe in you the way you believe in you. basically what's being said is that all of your problems can be solved as long as everyone else indulges your own narcissistic fantasies about who you are. You know, your problem is not that you're addicted to pornography. Your problem is that you just need an ego boost. Your problem is not that you're a selfish spouse and you actually don't and you actually need to acknowledge the damage you've done and take responsibility for it. No, your problem is you've just fallen out of love and you need to divorce and marry someone else who gives you sparks and butterflies in your stomach, right? I think one theologian summed it up this way, the problem in our culture is not that we don't love ourselves. The problem in our culture is that we love ourselves way too much. Now, there are sermons, you know, there there are sermons that our culture is preaching. Not every sermon is preached behind a pulpit in a church. Many sermons are preached in the passages of trashy romance novels, on the stage of daytime talk shows, and on the scrolling news headlines of the mainstream media. And the sermons that our culture is preaching is, it's all about you. It's all about your desires. It's all about your ego. It's all about your self-esteem. If you don't like what's being said on MSNBC, watch Fox News. If you don't like what's being said on Fox News, watch CNN. Watch Newsmax. Watch BBC. Watch The Blaze. Find a narrative that you like. Find a narrative that you like like. And churches advertise like this in our culture too. If you don't like that newfangled church that plays rock music, then come to our church where, where we have an old-fashioned country church, right? If you don't like that stuffy traditionalist church your parents raised you in, then come to our warehouse-looking rock concert with a 20-minute pep talk about how Jesus is your homeboy. Listen, you don't have to attend a modernist contemporary church to make your choice of where you worship all about you and all about your comfort level. Now, I know this is probably a separate sermon for a separate time, but I feel like I—I I, I feel like this needs to be said. Choosing a church solely based on your own personal level of comfort is a terrible way to choose where you worship. If there is such a thing as objective truth then there has to be an objective standard for what makes a church worth attending. Questions like this. Is the Bible held in high regard? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ made the entire focus of every part of the service? Now that's an important question. You know why we have a liturgy that we go through every Sunday? You know why we do the confession of sin and assurance of pardon, the call to worship? You know why we do all that every week? Because if I get up here and preach a stinker, you're still protected by the liturgy. You've still heard the gospel. Every part of the service is about Jesus. So is the Bible held in high regard? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ made the, enti- made the entire focus of every part of the service? Are the pastors and elders qualified to lead the church? And I'm not talking about educationally qualified on a formal level. I'm, I'm, not, I'm talking about biblically qualified. Do the pastors and elders meet the qualifications of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3? Those are very important questions to ask if you, ever have to look, if you ever have to look around for a different church. And none of those questions have to do with how comfortable the church makes you feel. Alright, now that I've got that out of my system, let me ask you a question. Whenever you go to the doctor's office and they check you out, <coughs> how do you know, or how do they know rather, how do they know that you're healthy? How do they know if your blood pressure is too high or too low? How do they know if your blood sugar is too high or too low? How do they know if your cholesterol is too high? Because sure, they've got machines that give numbers, but how do they know that the numbers are right? How do they know that your blood pressure shouldn't be, you know, 306 over 212, right? Something ridiculous like that. They know because they have an objective standard of what a healthy blood pressure looks like. They have an objective standard of what a healthy person's blood sugar should be. Now imagine if you could have a health examination. Imagine if you could have an examination of your relationship with God evaluated the same way that you would have the health of your body evaluated at the doctor's office. What would you say if I told you this morning that you actually could have an examination of the health of your relationship with God? This morning I'm going to ask four basic questions based on the text we just read. And I want us to be absolutely honest as we ask these four questions. Now you might be wondering, what does all this have to do with the passage and Augustine and and all of the things I talked about earlier? We're getting there, just fasten your seatbelt and go along with me for the ride. So we're going to ask four basic objective questions about our relationship with God. And all four of these questions come from the passage we just read. The first question I want us to ask of ourselves and our relationship with God is, are we standing firm? Are we standing firm? Look at verses 1 and verse 7 from Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. And then look what Paul says later in the chapter. He says, You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? Or if you're reading from the Old King James, I rather like how the Old King James translates verse 7. It says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so... The question the first question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is are we standing firm? Let's take a look at the book of Galatians as a whole for just a second. Paul writes the entire book of Galatians to a people who have come to know Christ, who have who have begun their journey with God, who have who have begun understanding the gospel and responding to it. But they they've gotten away from it. They've gotten away from it because they've allowed people to come in and tell them that the message that they've received from Paul, the message they've received from the apostles, is insufficient to save them. It's insufficient for their lives. They need other things on top of that message. Well, well, in the immediate context of the book of Galatians, the people who are saying that nonsense are the Judaizers. What what has happened is Paul has come into the, the, the region And he has preached the gospel. People have responded to the gospel. But then these Judaizers come along and they say, all right, now that you've repented and believed the gospel and are baptized, you also need to go back and do the Jewish part of the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to fulfill the law's demands. And if you do all of that, plus the stuff you did before, then you'll be saved. You'll be good with God. And it's creating a problem. It's creating a problem in the church that Paul has to address with this letter. Because what Paul does in this letter is he starts off in, in right out of the gate in the first chapter after he gives this uh, after he gives his typical greeting. Normally, Paul starts off a letter by, by by telling the church that he thanks them, thanks God for them, and that he remembers them in his prayers. And it's this, you know, big gushy thing that Paul goes through in just about every one of his letters. Um, But that's not how Galatians starts. Galatians starts with Paul's general greeting, and then when he gets to verse 6, he doesn't start off with the typical Pauline praise prayer. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again: If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. For I am now trying to persuade. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so that's how Paul starts off Galatians. And then, when you move to Galatians 3, (coughs) he starts off Galatians 3 this way. He says, You foolish Galatians! Who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the Spirit that you are now finishing by the flesh? So what does Paul do? He, he, writes, he writes to the Galatians and he says, you are a bunch of idiots if you're actually believing this nonsense, right? <laughs> what kind of pastor does that? <laughs> What kind of pastor does that? Paul does it and guess what? it works. Paul had the spiritual gift of verbal abuse. So <laughs> and, and so what happens is the Galatian church responds to this, right? Historically speaking, we historically speaking the church had some problems, but eventually what Paul wrote had an effect on the church. And so Paul wants to know, and, and so I think, we should, I think we should ask ourselves, first of all, are we standing firm? Verse 1, for freedom, Christ, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. And so think about this for a second. Christ saved you so that you could be free. Well, what did, what did Christ save you so that you could be free from? He saved you so that you could be free from your sin. And, and this, is a, this is a big problem within uh, you know, the progressive side of Christianity because the progressive side of Christianity, there pretty much is no sin. You're cute, fuzzy, and perfect the way you are, so therefore there's no sin to be forgiven of, right? And see, that, that's, where, that's where we get... in. in and I know I bring this up just about every other sermon, but it's a big issue in our denomination. I think it needs to be addressed. That's kind of where we get the whole LGBTQ stuff from in the church because they say, well, you know, God accepts you the way you are, and, and you are, God accepts you the way you are. You have no need to repent. You have no need to, to do any of this stuff. You know, you just need to keep being you. And that's not the way it works. God does accept you the way you are, but He, he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And so here's the deal. If there's, no, if there's If there's no sin in your life that needs to be repented of, then what does Jesus need to save you from? And if Jesus doesn't need to save you from anything, well, then you're good on your own, right? See how how progressive Christianity just really pulls the rug out from under the gospel? And so think about this in in the context of our own lives, too. What are we hearing from the culture? What are we hearing from those around us? As opposed to what we hear in Scripture. Scripture. Because what needs to happen is we need we, we need to understand that there is indwelling sin within us that needs to be repented of, that needs to be dealt with, and it can only be dealt with through faith and repentance. But that's the culture doesn't want to hear that. The culture says, well, if there is anything wrong with you, well, then you just need to like yourself more. You just need to affirm who you are you just need to have your you know daily dose of your positive affirmations and you know read Joel Osteen's new book whatever I don't know you need to do something other than go to Christ and so what happens is Paul straight up asks them in verse 7 you were running well who prevented you from from being persuaded regarding the truth, or who, who hindered you from obeying the truth? <coughs> and I think about this. This is an interesting verse because I think this is a question we need to ask ourselves sometime. Who prevented us? Who prevents us from hindering the truth? Well, we do. We can't we can't put the blame on anybody else we have to take responsibility for our own failings. And i was thinking about this i was thinking about this this week in relation to the story of abner dying in second samuel chapter 3. I had an experience this morning i had an experience this week where i woke up and i was about to reach for my phone and my ipad and do my morning scroll, right? We all do that right before we get out of bed, the morning scroll. And just before i was i reached for my phone, It's like I heard God in my spirit saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Read. And so I opened up my Bible and went to 2 Samuel 3, and I started reading about Abner's death because I'd been thinking about it. And in 2 Samuel 3, basically what happens is Abner has killed Joab's brother in battle. And Joab's brother was coming after him, they were in a battle, and Abner warned him two times. He said, "Don't," he said, "Don't chase after me. You're not going to like what happens. I'm going to he said, "If I have to, I will kill you." He warned him twice. And Joab's brother kept coming after him, and Joab eventually defended himself and killed him. And so, in 2 Samuel 3, uh, Joab begins pursuing Abner, and Abner gets to Hebron. Hebron was a city of refuge, and in the city of refuge, um, if you had accidentally killed someone and you were afraid for your life that their family might try to take revenge on you, you could go to one of the cities of refuge and take refuge there, and legally the family could not come after you as long as you were in that city. And you could stay in that city for as long as the high priest was still in office. As soon as the high priest died, you lost all protection. And the reason Galatians 5-7 made me think about this is because Abner is going into Hebron to take refuge there, and Joab catches up to him there, and... Just as Abner is about to get into the city of refuge, Joab sees Abner and he says, come here, I want to talk to you. And Abner probably thinks, well, Joab's come to his senses. Joab wants to talk this out. And so they get to the middle of the Hebron city gate and Joab takes a dagger and kills Abner. And David mourns his death. And David asked the question in 2 Samuel 3. He said, why did Abner have to die as a fool? In 2 Samuel 3, verse 31, David then ordered Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, put on sackcloth, and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin, and they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb, and all the people wept, and, and the king sang a lament for Abner. Should Abner die as a fool dies. And so I thought about Galatians 5 7 in relation to that, because who hindered, who hindered Abner from getting to the city of refuge? Well, it wasn't, you might think it's Joab, because Joab waved him back and said, hey, I want to have a word with you. But Abner should have known what was going to happen. Joab was out for blood. And so Abner could have just said, no, uh-uh, I'm getting in the city, we can talk in the city, because then nothing could have happened. But instead, he went out to the gate. Now, the gate, wasn't just, the gate to Hebron wasn't just, you know, an open and closed gate like you've got on your front yard, right? This thing is massive. It's huge. The gate to Hebron is, is huge. And it's, got, it's like a tunnel when you get up to it. And so what happened was, Joab took Abner to the middle of the gate where it was dark. And nobody could see anything. And as soon as they got into that dark place, he died. And so what happens is, whenever we go up to the gate, whenever we are trying to fight against our sin, whenever we're trying to fight against our sin and make it to a place where we feel like we've beat temptation, it's always right behind us. And it takes us to a dark place, and in the dark is where it kills us. And so in Galatians 5, 7, Paul asks the church, he says, Well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, it wasn't the Judaizers, it was them. They hindered themselves. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is Are we standing firm? Who is it that's hindering us from obeying what God has clearly said? Well, it's us. We have to take responsibility. And what happened and what happened was when David mourned his death, he said, Ab, did Abner have to die as a fool? Matter of fact, it's not even a question if you go back and read it in the new in, if you go back and read it in the old King James, it's not even a question. David doesn't ask if Abner died as a fool. David outright said, Abner dieth as a fool. <coughs> And so the issue for us is, are we going to go on in obedience or are we going to stay behind and get drugged into a dark place and die as a fool? One of the most prominent and ironic examples of this was a Pentecostal preacher years ago. He was famous, Had, had a tent crusade ministry. Had a literature publication minister. He was big. His name was A.A. A. Allen. Some of you might even know that name. A.A. A. Allen preached a sermon on this text about Abner dying as a fool. And it was one of his most famous sermons. He preached it over and over again years, ever, for years everywhere he went. And then what happened is, I think it was in 1970, It was either 1970 or or 1959, around that time, A.A. Allen was staying at a hotel. And uh, he was staying there because he was doing one of his tent crusades. And his crew and his assistants were getting ready for service that night. And everyone looked around and said, well, where's A.A. at? Where's he at? Nobody could find him. And so they went back to his hotel, knocked on the door, didn't get an answer. And they got someone to come and open the door and they walked in. A.A. Allen was dead. And the reason he was dead is because he had drunk himself to death. And what had happened was, what they later found out and became public information was that for years, A.A. Allen had a drinking problem. And, And he had multiple DUIs and DWIs, but he was able to cover it up because he had so much money and so much prestige, and he had so many people who were, who were working with him to help him cover up all those incidents. Finally, when they walked into his hotel room and found him dead laying there, they found multiple bottles, multiple bottles of liquor, one of them laying beside his bed, and when they did the autopsy, they found that he had, he had drunk himself to death. A man who preached the sermon on how not to die like a fool died as a fool. And it became the end of his legacy. Because what had happened was he was drugged to a dark place and the darkness overtook him. And it killed him. And everything that he tried to hide couldn't be hidden anymore. And so we need to answer the question. We need to take account this morning. Who has hindered us? Are we standing firm? Next question, verse
0: 16.
1: Galatians chapter 5. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. And so what Paul says is, Paul says that if you're going to follow God, if you're going to be obedient to God, you need to walk with the Spirit. As a matter of fact, he uses, he gives a clearer picture of this in, in verse um, 25 when he says, "If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit." And so, the question, the next question we need to answer is, well, first, the first question was, "Are we standing firm?" The next question is, "Are we stepping forward?" What's the course of our lives in relationship to God? Are we moving towards the place where God would have us be? Are we moving forward in obedience? Where, where is the direction of our lives headed? And I think, and just two practical questions. This, this, this isn't, uh, isn't an uh, always and every case thing. But if you want to know the direction of a person's life, then look at two things. Look at their habits and look at who they hang out with. Look at their habits and look at who they hang out with. Because the answer to those two questions is going to tell you where a person's life is headed. And I think it's the same with, with our with our situation, with our walk with God, with our relationship with God. What are our habits and who do we hang out with? Because here's the deal: if your relationships, if the relationships that you feed in your life is only with those who have bad habits and and hang out with bad people, then that's going to be, that's going to eventually be the trajectory the trajectory of your life unless something changes. You know, we we know of many people who have passed away due to overdoses and due due to drunkenness, due to whatever, and it's because the lifestyle overtook them. The lifestyle overtook them because they couldn't beat the habit and they couldn't get rid of the people they were hanging out with. And, and that's the case with people who come out of jail, right? People go into jail for, for possession or whatever. And, you know, while they're in jail, they've got time to think and they've got time to reevaluate their lives. They say, all right, well, whenever I get out, things are going to be different. I'm going to be better. And then what happens is, as soon as they get out, they might not immediately get back on drugs, but, but they do immediately start hanging out with the people that they hung out with before. And so, when the people that they hung out with before come back, then the habits come back. And so, what happens is they begin stepping back into that old lifestyle and they regress. And so, what are our habits? What are the, what are the habits that we use to feed ourselves? Are we, are we pursuing the spiritual disciplines? Are we praying? Are we fasting? Are we studying the scriptures? Are we, are we communing with God in silence? Richard Foster has a very good book about spiritual disciplines. And he goes through kind of each one and explains how they contribute to our relationship with God. And and Dallas Willard has another uh, book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Actually, I think, I, I actually think I got, I gave a copy of that book to Rhonda a couple years ago. Um, but Dallas muller has a really good book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And he talks about the habits of, of, of someone who has a relationship with God. And so the question is, are we stepping forward? Next question is, are we starving the flesh? And this kind of goes in hand in hand with are we stepping forward? Because, because what feeds our flesh, what feeds the, the part of us, what, what feeds our sin nature... <coughs> Are the things that contribute to someone having a high ego, or, the, or or contribute to someone being selfish, being prideful? Verses nineteen through twenty-one, Paul lays out the works of the flesh, and these are the things that feed us. These are the things that feed our sin nature. He says, "Now the flesh, now the works of the flesh are obvious: sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity." idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition. Let me let me just stop there for just a second and show you the progress of the things that Paul lists. Because I think it's kind of sneaky in a way. Because when Paul starts listing the works of the flesh, uh, we we hear him begin the list, and we think, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And then he gets down to other stuff, and we're like, oh, well... <laughs> Because it's not just the big baddies, right? He starts out with the big baddies. He says sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery. And then he starts getting to, to the little foxes that spoil the vine. Hatreds, strife, jealousy, envy, outbursts of anger. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. I think I said envy twice. Envy. There, I said it a third time because it's a big deal apparently. (laughs) Um, Drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what what Paul does is he says, you know, you understand these big things, right? You're probably not going out on the weekends carousing. You're probably not cheating on your wife. But are you looking at porn? You know, you're you're probably not out there just taking a baseball bat to everybody that ticks you off. But do you hate them? You know, you're you're probably not at home bowing down to some figurine that you've made, bowing down to some shrine you've made in your closet. But what takes up most of your time, energy, and resources? And Paul says, I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These practices that Paul lists here in Galatians 5 19, to Nineteen through twenty-one, they do not fit the identity of someone who is a citizen of God's kingdom. And if you claim to be a Christian and these are the things that define your life, you need to re really reevaluate where your faith is. You need to really reevaluate how God is how God is forming you and shaping you. You need to evaluate how submissive you are to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Third question, I'm sorry, I just covered that. The fourth question, final final question here. Are we staying focused? So, are we standing firm? Are we stepping forward? Are we starving the flesh? Are we staying focused? Because notice what Paul says, those who do not practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33, Look at what Jesus says. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. See, let me just address some of the misconceptions we might have in our mind whenever we hear that verse. See, whenever we think of the kingdom of God, and inheriting the kingdom of God, our first, our first instinct is to think of going to heaven when we die, right? Because that's... You know, that for some reason that's what makes up most of our most of the songs that we sing. You know, we, we sing about going to heaven when we die a lot. And it's true. If you're a Christian and you're a believer, you will go to heaven. You will go to heaven when you die. But heaven is not the end goal of your relationship with God. The end goal of your relationship with God is your transformation into Christ likeness. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that for that those whom God foreknew, He did predestine. And those whom He predestined, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And during that whole chain of redemption, Paul says that the end goal of this predestination, the end goal of this idea of God setting His love on you and saving you and transforming you, is so that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. And so, whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom, heaven, you know, the, the, idea, the idea of heaven... It's, it's included in that, but that is not the sum total of what Jesus means when he's talking about the kingdom of God. Because, you, because here's the thing, you can experience the kingdom of God to some degree while you're down here. And I think we all know good and well that you can, because you're saved, right? It, the moment you got saved, you inherited a citizenship in God's kingdom. And that's just on a spiritual level. Think about think about the other ways that we see the kingdom of God in action on earth. <coughs> every time someone gets healed, every time someone gets saved, every time someone gets delivered, it's the kingdom of God active on earth. Every time a family every time a family has a child baptized, it's a picture of the kingdom. Every time someone with a need and that every time someone has a need, and that need gets met by the church, it's a picture of the kingdom. It's a picture of the kingdom because in the kingdom there are no needs. And so what Jesus says in Matthew 6 is that if you seek first the kingdom of God and seek His righteousness, all of these things will be added to you. You won't have a need. You won't experience. You won't experience need the same way you did before. Because you understand, and here's the thing: whenever, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you won't ever experience. Oh, what's the what's the PC term? Um, well, I'll just go ahead and say it. I'm not saying that you won't ever experience financial hardship. I'm not saying you won't ever experience. <coughs> Uh, a negative balance in the bank account but what i am saying is you won't look at need the same way you looked at it before you encountered Christ because before you encountered Christ if you had a need you, if you were out of money if you were out of groceries you would stress out and you would say oh god what am i going to do i don't have this i don't have that but if you're a christian and you have those things if you're a christian and you if you're a christian and you have a negative balance in the bank account and your cabinets are bare you can you can look around at your lack and say, you know what, I don't have this, this, or this, but I have Jesus, and Jesus is going to see me through this. And a part of the kingdom, and, a part, and staying on that topic of the kingdom of God, when Paul's talking about the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, he's talking about these, these awful things, these sins, And he says, the one who is focused on the kingdom, the one who is focused on the works and effects of the kingdom, their life isn't defined by all of these things because their life is focused on the things of Christ. And if their life is focused on the things of Christ, then instead of giving birth to these works of the flesh, their life is going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Their life is going to be defined in a different way. Their life is going to be defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so I want to ask you these questions again this morning. Are we standing firm? Are we stepping forward? Are we starving the flesh? Are Are we staying focused? Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your kingdom and I pray God that you would use this word to capture our hearts, capture our minds, and renew us in your presence. Lord, you know the thoughts and intents of our heart. You know the secret things that we try to hide. Lord, you know the times that we've stepped into the darkness of our temptation and we have failed miserably, but Lord, you have kept us safe through it. Father, would you come to us this morning, and would you forgive us, would you renew us? Father, would you deal with the sins that we try to hide in the darkness, and would you remove those from our lives? We ask it all in your name,
0: amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.